The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jebek. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, and we ask that you would be at work amongst us through the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word, that you might instruct us, that you might renew us, that you might encourage us, that you indeed might even confront us. We ask that you would accomplish the, the varied purposes that you have for each person this morning as we hear your word preached. Humble our hearts that we might submit, not just listen, but submit and do that which you command us to do. Reveal to us this morning some of the greatness of the gospel in the life of Jacob. In Christ's name, amen. I have a sad confession to make to you this morning. And that is, when I was a child, I watched professional wrestling. Okay? Um, I'm not sure what intrigued me about this, but uh, nonetheless, it did. And uh, basically, way back when, it was a morality play. There was good and there was evil, and you were sure you knew who was good and you knew who was evil, although occasionally they would change sides. And each wrestler had what was called his signature move. You know, Killer Kowalski, although he predates me, you know, had the the claw, which I still use on the children to this day. Um, <laughs> although not here, I I get them here. It tickles them on the on the belly. But uh, nonetheless, uh, one of the things when you knew a feud between the good guy and the bad guy was really heating up when there was the sneak attack. Well, you know, the, the one guy, the, usually it's the good guy, he's, he's in there in the ring and either he's getting beat up or maybe he's just won and suddenly out from the back there appears the bad guy and he attacks him, he blindsides him. It was a sign of the seriousness of the feud. In this case, it's not the sign of the seriousness of the feud, it is an act of love, this sneak attack 
this being blindsided by God. Because that is precisely what happens to Jacob. Blindsided. Something he did not expect. The big idea this morning is that God empties us of self-reliance in order to bless us in the gospel. And I only have two points this morning. They're a little long, but two points this morning. Okay, I had three and said, and just repeating myself, two points. The first of which is that God breaks us of sinful self-reliance. We see here Jacob has separated himself from the rest of his family. He sent his wives, his wives, his children, his concubines, he sent all of his animals across this place called the, the Yabbok River. Interesting name for a place. It sounds similar to Jacob. Yaakov, Yabak. A little similar. The, the word means to flow or to empty. It's a river that is found, let's go back to our imaginary map. We haven't looked at this in a while. Okay? We have the Jordan River. We have the Dead Sea. Over here we have Amman, which is the, the modern capital of uh, Jordan. And there, just outside of there, is the, the source, the spring that produces the Yabbok River, which winds a little bit north and comes down and meets the Jordan River. It is the last natural barrier before Jacob enters into the land that he has been promised by God. He's about to re-enter into that which was originally given to Abraham. But before he can enter that, he himself must be emptied of something. And it's appropriate that he ends up at this particular place, fording uh, at the ford of this river, which actually was a pretty good river. It ran regularly because of the spring. It was not dependent upon the rains, although there were lots of rains, over 30 inches of rain a year in that particular portion of the land. So it was very fertile in that area, that stretch of land around the Yabak River. But it cut this deep canyon, so it's very interesting when you think about it. But it is here. He sent everyone else across, but he himself has not yet entered. The dark of night comes, and it is then where he is not able to see except by the light of the stars and the moon that someone attacks him. Someone jumps upon him. Could this be his dark fear that his brother Esau has found him and has taken advantage of the night to attack? Is that what's happening? No, as we see, it doesn't. But there, get in mind of the fear and the uncertainty that Jacob experiences. He doesn't know who has come out of the night. He only knows that they have the shape of a man. The strength of a man. So a man, it says, wrestled with him. And not only do Yabak and Yaakov sound familiar or sound alike, but the word for wrestling sounds like them. It's almost like he's Yabaking by the Yabak, if you were into Hebrew. Okay? But this, the word for wrestling comes from the root of dust. Okay? Because when you wrestle on the ground, what happens to you? Well, if you wrestled out there, okay, you get dusty. So there's a sense of, of, they're having a dust-up, so to speak. They're out in the wilderness, rolling around on the ground. You could see the dust if there was enough light. 
real wrestling, not the fake stuff on TV. Okay, real wrestling, Olympic wrestling kind of stuff, high school wrestling, is exhausting. If you ever try to do this, you will find yourself quickly wearied. And yet, it is something that speaks to the strength of these two people that they are grappling with one another through much of the night. Initially, Jacob does not realize who has attacked him, but the text slowly reveals who it really is, and that eventually will be revealed as God himself. And so they appear to be evenly matched as the contest goes through the night. And the only way to understand this, really, is to understand it like when a, ma- when a, a father wrestles with his kids. Okay, um, Although I imagine if Randy tried to wrestle with Daniel now, it would not go... <laughs> It wouldn't go well for Randy. <laughs> right? I'm pretty sure that would happen. But, you know, my kids don't like to wrestle all that much, so I, I feel like I'm cheated as a father. But, uh, you know, we wrestle with our kids. We, we don't use our full strength. We play with them. We invite them into this thing, and, you know, we roll around on the floor, and there's giggling and laughing unless Eli is involved. And uh, that, that's sort of the sense, not the giggling and the laughing. Okay, But the sense of God restraining his strength. He is not using his infinite strength in dealing with Jacob. He's restraining himself. He's keeping the battle going because he has a purpose in mind for this struggle that he has initiated with Jacob. We often talk about wrestling with God as though it's something we're doing. And it usually means that we're wrestling with our doubts or something. But here it is God who comes to Jacob and who wrestles him, who starts the fight. And that points to, uh, it should point us to something. That something is, is that God is not afraid to get down and fight with you. He is not afraid of a dust-up with you. He is not some gentleman who stands, you know... Uh, calmly pleading with you or or trying to encourage you. There are times when he takes the gloves off and tosses you on the ground, metaphorically speaking. He does not only use words, but sometimes he comes and he gets you in a headlock. He comes and he ties up your legs so that you can't move. Tim Keller, in talking about this passage, talks about, talks about it in the, in the sense of trying to discern a true encounter with God versus a false encounter with God, sort of the, the abstract encounter with God where a person intellectually may come to, oh, yes, there is a God, and yes, I believe in this God. But when you really know this God, he says, you have encountered them. One of the ways you know that is that God is not afraid to intrude on your life. He's not just passively out there like deism where, yes, he made this world and yes, he made me, you know, everything is okay. But God intrudes. God is not afraid to insert himself into your circumstances. He is not afraid to insert himself in your choices and saying, what you're doing is wrong. The direction you're moving is the, is the wrong direction. He's not afraid of that. He's not afraid to get in our face. He's not afraid of us. And what we might think. One of the questions that arises, of course, is that did this really happen? Calvin, you know, is one who says that this took place in a vision or a dream. 
But based on the fact of what will happen to Jacob, this goes beyond a vision or a dream. This really happened. God really condescended to, to come in the form of a man and to really wrestle with Jacob. It's not a bad dream. It's not because he had some pizza that was a little off or anything like that. This really happened. Okay? But he engages Jacob. In the midst of this, it says that he touched his hip socket. The hip is the strongest joint in your body. Stronger than your shoulder. Stronger than your ankle. Stronger than your knee. Stronger than your elbow. Stronger than anything else. You are least likely to dislocate a hip. And here it says that the man wrestling with Jacob merely touches him in the hip. His signature move finally comes out. Boom. His hip is dislocated. Can you imagine trying to wrestle with a dislocated hip? Okay. That's where all your leverage and your power comes from, is, is, is your waist and your hip and your legs and all of that. You lose that and you can do almost nothing. God strikes him at the base of his power. Okay. He makes his life miserable, in a sense. As I thought about this notion of God intruding and, and sort of what happens as a result, one of the things I thought of was our son. Okay, and I, I was talking with some people Wednesday night at prayer about this. And, and this is similar. For Eli in the orphanage, men were sort of abstract. He did not have much to do with men because the caregivers were women. And the, there were probably men who served as security or something like this. Then he comes to America and he meets this crazy man who's trying to tell him what to do. And this crazy man who will not just interfere and tell him what to do, but will bodily encourage that. Okay? It seems strange for us to think of that, doesn't it? It seems like God is harming Jacob here. That's what it looks like on the surface. But what he's really doing is rescuing Jacob. And he's rescuing Jacob from himself. And in order to rescue him from himself, he, in a sense, has to cripple Jacob. Because up to this point, Jacob has been able to scheme his way and use his strength as well as, as, well as his mental powers to get out of everything. And God says, not this time. Jacob is going to be permanently disabled by this event. The text says that he walks away with a limp, and he would indeed limp the rest of his life. As C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not safe, but he is good. 
In other words, God is not going to let Jacob enter the promised land as Jacob. He's not going to let him inherit the promise, the reality of the promise, as the supplanter, as the one who grafts the heel, as his name means, as the schemer. He's not going to let him do this. He's saying, you must change. And beyond that, I am going to change you. We read about Saul this morning. Did you catch what happened to Saul? He couldn't become the king as he was. He had to meet the prophets. And it was in that that the text says, he gave Saul a new heart. He changed Saul so that he could be a king instead of a big grown-up kid which is what he was, hiding in the suitcases. He had to change him. God had to change Saul, who was destroying the church, into Paul, who would build the church. Same way. Okay, same sort of concept is going on. And so what Israel was to, to understand as they, they read this, was that they too could not enter the promised land as they were. were, They needed to repent and renew their covenant with God before they tried to enter and take the promised land. And so we see those things happening. We see, even still, after that takes place at the end of Joshua, he's like, "You, you, you still need to leave your idols behind. Jacob needed to lose his strength, his self-reliance. Israel also had to wrestle with God to be circumcised of heart before the Lord. Deuteronomy 30, this is right before they go into the land. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you might live. It had to change. And I will say to you that God will not let you enter his church, not the building, but the body of Christ. He will not let you enter the body of Christ unchanged. Whether you are a religious person relying upon your own goodness, or you're a rebellious person who who just, I don't want to do my own thing. Either way, God will not let you into the body of Christ as you are. That's why it says, repent. And believe. The recognition is that we must change to be united. You know, at, when we are united with Christ, we will change. But it's not just the conversion experience that, experience that we see this change, but that God continues to wrestle with us. He continues to work to humble us. He continues to work to break us of the stubbornness of our wills. And usually that is at the point of your strength. That thing that you rely upon the most is that thing that He is going to get you with for your Good. I was thinking about that this week. 
And I thought, of, of all the funky little diseases I could get, I have one that affects my brain, among other things. Okay, I've, I was diagnosed this fall with some vitamin deficiencies and a few other things. And one of the, the, the two things that I noticed were, man, I'm tired all the time. And two, my brain just isn't firing like it used to. Point of pride. My brain. Supposedly I'm smart. Apparently not anymore. But, but sometimes our smartness can get in the way of thinking God's thoughts after Him. Sometimes our smartness or my smartness can perhaps get in the way of powerfully proclaiming God's Word because I'm trying to be too stinking cute. And the power goes, it's just like 1 Corinthians talks about. The power is meant to be the Spirit of God and the, proc- the simple proclamation of the Gospel. The point of strength is where God goes to show you, yes, you need me. Yes, you can't do this without me. But like Jacob, we don't really know what's going on at the time. We don't really understand these things. And so it might look like a job change. It might look like marital problems. It might look like health issues. It could be any number of things. But then it is really God who is wrestling with you in the midst of that. And so God wrestles with with us not to destroy us, but to humble us for a greater purpose. So we're finally moving to the second part of this. Aren't you glad? And that is that God blesses us in our brokenness. Not in our strength, not in our self-reliance, not in anything but our brokenness, our weakness the very thing that He produces in us. The contest between God and Jacob is essentially over. Jacob is unable to generate leverage and he is in incredible pain due to the dislocation of his hip. But there is one thing that Jacob does. He recognizes that there is something incredibly unusual about this opponent. And so he will not let him go. He's like Eli. Have you ever gotten Eli on your leg? It is very hard to, to remove him from said limb. That is Jacob. He can't walk, but he can hold on. And as, as, as Hosea, the prophet Hosea talks about this later on, he strove with the angel. We'll get to that in a moment. And prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. And so Jacob is clinging to that leg, that body, for all he's worth, and he's crying out, Bless me! Bless me! You're more powerful than I am. I need your blessing. Please give it. And let's keep that idea from Hosea. He's weeping. Not just from the agony that racks his body, but I think also from the reality that he needs this more than he needs anything. 
He does not want to go from this this wrestling experience and meet his brother crippled. He needs blessing, empowerment to face his brother. Often the angel of the Lord, a theophany is is another way of saying God himself who shows up. Yeah, there's sort of like this. A lot of passages will say God does this, but then, it, then like the next thing it says, the angel of the Lord. This is probably the pre-incarnate, eternal Son taking up the form of a man to wrestle with Jacob. And before he will bless him, Jacob must first surrender. What is your name? That was the sign of the cry of uncle was to give up your name. And in in confessing his name, he confesses his true nature. I am a schemer. I am the one who supplanted my brother through deceit. He confesses who he really is as he speaks his name. And so part of the blessing that is given here is reflected in his name. Because this God himself says, and why we say God at the end, because Jacob says, I saw God and I lived. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. God fights. But it sounds like he who, he who fights with God and man and wins. That's how it's interpreted uh, by God at this point. He gives him his name for that reason. But part of the blessing is this new name, which reflects the change that takes place in him. There's going to be something different about, about Jacob going forward. And it, what's really interesting, um, at least to me, maybe it's not interesting to you, but remember when Abram... Got a new name to Abraham? You never hear Abram again. It's always Abraham. But here with Jacob, sometimes he is still called Jacob and sometimes he is called Israel. And I think that is, in a sense, a reflection of whether he's living out the old man or the new. Is he, is he still acting like Jacob, or is he more acting in line with who God is making him? And it points to the reality that we are not perfect. Though we are in Christ, and though we have His perfect righteousness, we are not perfect. And there are times when we act like the old guy, not the new guy. But the name, as I mentioned, also reveals the identity of his opponent. It is God. He wrestled with God. Or better, God wrestled with him. When, and this is a lesson, intended to be a lesson for the original audience who read this. Because whenever Israel thought it was strong... 
they would be puffed up and they would not seek God's blessing. And what would happen is they would eventually get God's discipline. They were supposed to remember as they entered into the promised land that, it, that all of this was going to be accomplished by God himself. Yeah, they were going to carry swords. Yeah, they were going to march around Jericho. Yeah, they were going to do these things. But ultimately, it was God who was the strong one. From Joshua 23, he's reflecting back as to what happened in the conquest of the promised land. The Lord your God, and, and looking forward to what is, is going to happen. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. It's going to be accomplished ultimately by God, not them. It's not their strength. It's not their great strategy. It's not their overwhelming numbers. It is God who gives them this land. Similarly, in in Zechariah, we read this. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The things that Zerubbabel was promised would not be accomplished by Zerubbabel's power. They would not be accomplished by Zerubbabel's might. He didn't need to go strategize how he could become the king and somehow throw off the yoke of the Medes and the Persians. By my spirit. And what the problem was is that Zerubbabel got the message but didn't live by the message. Okay? For us, this community group, we just started Ephesians, first chapter. We talked about the reality that we receive spiritual, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We who are sinners receive these things in Christ Jesus because He is the one who was crushed for our iniquities. God didn't just wrestle with His Son. He crushed Him. (coughs) Took the gloves off. He didn't hold anything back. It's almost like those grudge matches in wrestling when it gets to the final point to get the big money, you know, for the pay-per-view kind of thing now. They didn't have those when I was a kid. The death match. And it really wasn't a death match. But with the Father and the Son, it was. Because the Son was representing us in our sin. And it was to the death. And that's why he took on a man's body, a man's nature, that he might die as we deserve to die. He was stricken so precisely so that through him we might receive the blessing that comes from his obedience as a man. And so what often happens is that in His love and in His grace, because we are still imperfect, God continues to bring you to the end of yourself. He brings you into circumstances that are beyond you, that you cannot fix. And as uh, our reflection this morning talked about, we want the plans, we want the five steps, we want the strategies to make our marriage better, 
when it feels like it's the living death. We want to know the three things we should do to get a better job or to fix whatever that problem is. And what God is really doing is He is bringing us to the very end of ourselves, to the point where we realize, I can't do this. One of the things in watching the, the movie, um, I Am Legend, with Will Smith, which is a, a modern adaptation, or a, a revamping of an old book and old movie. And the, the plague has covered the earth, and he is one of the few remaining people who has not been zombi- zombieized. Okay? But he still has this hope. He still screams this, I can fix this. He's still under this illusion that he can fix everything and make it all okay and maybe even bring back his wife and daughter. We can't fix it. And that's the place where we really finally change. Because it is God who is at work in us and not us trying to make ourselves better. Because you can't change you. Oh, you can rearrange a few things, but you can't change your nature. You can't ultimately change who you are, but He can. True change happens when we feel the weight of our brokenness. We feel the stubbornness of our sin. Now, we're Americans, most of us anyway. And Americans fear weakness. We cover it up. We ignore it. We try to to be strong. If there are blemishes, if we're women, we break out the makeup, cover them up. If we're men, we do the comb over. (laughs) Or the toupee, even worse, the toupee. If anyone here has one, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to insult you. But... I don't think anyone here has one, so that means it's a really good one. Okay? But do you understand what I'm saying? We don't want to be known in our weakness and our vulnerability. We want to be known in our strength and our capability. And so we hide everything. And what the gospel does is say, you have to stop hiding it. You have to stop pretending because the gospel only meets those who admit that they are weak, that they're needy, that they're sinful, they can't change by themselves. Paul lived this as well, post-Christian. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12 where to keep him from pride, he had a thorn in the flesh and three times he asked God, take this thing away from me. Okay, If you ever deal with a health, wealth, gospel person, this is the verse. This is the passage you need to bring them to because they can't answer it. Three times, Paul said, and he I think he had a little bit of faith. And God said, no. And the reason he said no is he didn't go, because you don't believe enough, try harder. My grace 
is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take this away because I want to show the sufficiency of my grace. And he goes on further, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for when I am weak, then I am strong. So I was talking with one of those health wealth guys one day how God wants us all to be healthy. And I said, no. God wants you to be weak. That He might be revealed as strong. How does that fit into your theology? It doesn't. In other words, we need to bring our weaknesses to Jesus. We don't need to be ashamed of those weaknesses. But we need to bring them to him and we need to cling to him just similar to Jacob. Bless me. I desperately need you. This latest thing I've gotten myself into, I can't fix. This sin that that I keep running back to, I can't these circumstances that are pressing in so hard that they feel like they're going to destroy me I can't fix bless me and so while God receives us though we are a mess he does not leave us a mess he works to reveal and destroy everything that we rely upon instead of him He engages us in a fight, not to destroy us, but so that we might seek His grace so that we can change. And so if God is not contending with you regularly or periodically, let's periodically, um, okay, then it probably means you're just playing a game. It's, It's just, your Christianity is just a head game. That you really haven't encountered the true, living, and gracious God who saves sinners by His Son, Jesus Christ. And so seek the Son in your weakness to receive His blessing. Let's pray. Father, our brother Dan Allender writes that the story is not so much about the struggle, but about your goodness. Because you blessed even a conniving, undeserving man like Jacob. And so there's hope for the rest of us whether we're not a Christian, there's hope for us. Even if we're a Christian and we continue to stumble and fall and get tripped up, there's hope for us because of your goodness revealed in Christ. So help us to see Him crucified, resurrected, ascended, seated upon the throne of grace, our advocate. Help us to remember these things and to cry out to Him in those moments when You confront us, when You knock us down, when You humble us. May we cry out, recognizing it's okay to be desperate when you're in desperate straits.
and so glorify the grace of your Son in us. In whose name we pray, amen.